0: Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to process trauma, spur personal growth, and reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Today, we are joined by poet, editor, and copywriter Phil Goldstein. His debut collection of poetry, How to Bury a Boy at Sea, came out on Stillhouse Press in 2022. In addition, his work has appeared in, or is forthcoming in, The Adroit Journal, The Shore, West Trade Review, Atticus Review, South Florida Poetry Journal. Thank you so much for joining me today, Phil.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: As I always do on episodes where the poet reaches out to me, I like to start off by thanking you for reaching out to me. It means a lot to know that poets have listened to the podcast and have engaged with it and then have found themselves wanting to be a part of it. So, yeah, I really appreciate you doing that.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad to. And I really appreciate the work that you've been doing with the podcast, you know, to kind of broaden the, the audience that cares about poetry.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean trying to show what poetry can be and who can be a poet and what poetry means to so many people. It's, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. So I'm glad that I finally be able to do this and especially meet awesome people like you. So thank you for sitting down with me. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to be here. Uh, just for our listeners who are unfamiliar with you as a poet and your work, would you mind sharing some information about your debut collection, How to Bury a Boy at Sea, whether it's themes or anything you want to talk about just about the book in general?
1: Sure. Um so How to Bury a Boy at Sea, uh, like you said, came out last year, 2022, from Stillhouse Press. And it is a book that really reckons with the trauma of child sex abuse and how that can ripple out into a person's life and just, you know, the many different facets and, and aspects of that and all the emotions that surround it you know especially the the sort of coming to terms with what happened and and trying to uh heal and, and make sense
0: yeah definitely I mean I've read a few of the poems that you've sent me and just reading some of your work on some of the journals that you've you know had the pleasure of being published in it's quite moving work and you know in this podcast I, I push towards this idea of like how can poetry help for personal growth and things like that but We obviously have some guests who, you know, they kind of push back at this idea that poetry is a place that should be where one goes to find this emotional healing. Not that it can't offer it, but maybe where one should go. So I'm kind of curious for you in writing these poems and How to Bury a Boy at Sea, did you kind of see the poems or the collection as a whole as like ending, closing a chapter of your life? Like this allowed you, you saw it as like, when I finish this book, I might be, you know, one step closer towards this emotionally healed place?
1: Um, I think only in the sense of looking at that in retrospect and after the fact. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I consciously thought about that at the outset of me writing poems about the abuse and the trauma. Um, mm-hmm. It was more just a way for me to try to start to make sense of things because I was writing about, you know, that and and using that as a tool when I started going to intensive, you know, individualized therapy to deal with the the trauma. I told my therapist that I was a writer and I'd written poems when I was in middle school and high school and to college. And she recommended, you know, first journaling and then writing, you know, creatively um, to help me. And so it was just kind of something that I, I did and turned to to help kind of start to sort out some thoughts in my head. Um, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like I set out thinking, oh, well, like once I write all I can write about this, then I'm going to be in this different place. I mean, mm-hmm. that eventually did happen, but only over the course of writing all the poems that became the book and, you know, even kind of after the book was published did i feel like kind of a a little bit of a page had been turned
0: yeah definitely that's interesting and also great to hear that your therapist or whoever it was recommended the journaling and you know kind of going back to some of this creative writing that you might have saw in your high school and college years were there any like you know help things that they saw helpful or like that you know, suggestions they had in, you know, what you should write or how to approach that writing? Or was it kind of just open-ended? Like, I recommend, you know, putting some of this stuff on the page.
1: Uh, More the latter. You mm-hmm. know, I think that I really kind of decided what to write about. And it, it did tend to reflect, especially in the early months and into the early kind of year-plus of me Um, Seeing my therapist, it did tend to reflect some of the things that we were talking about in therapy, um, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like it was directed by my therapist. It was more just encouraged.
0: I'm curious, just as someone who has this completed collection and, you know, it kind of, you know, the spark of this completed collection was just kind of maybe a pouring out of emotions recommended by your therapist. Like, how do you feel there was this difference in this early writing versus you know the the completed poems in the collection like you know did you find yourself writing towards an emotion at the beginning and then you know when you're crafting a collection you're like all right thinking about the art of poetry more i'm just curious like how things changed or evolved over time for that
1: um i think that that's definitely true for what my experience was with this in the sense that in the beginning, it was more about, you know, just trying to process emotions. And then actually after the book had been accepted for publication by Stillhouse, which was around the very beginning of the pandemic, um, I was working with the editors um, who I work with at the press and they were, you know, really, Encouraging slash pushing me to dig deeper and to write poems about things that I hadn't written about. So, for example, poems about my childhood that were not explicitly about the abuse, or poems about different family members. You know, I wound up writing a poem that described what it was like for me to be. The best man at my brother's wedding and for those of you who haven't read the book or don't know my story my older brother um is the one who sexually abused me um when i was between the ages of 10 and 12 and you know so there was a lot that they pushed me to write that wasn't in the original manuscript and i think that the book is certainly better for that um it was definitely difficult to to dig into some of that material but i'm i'm glad that i did
0: yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. I know in like previous episodes, like thinking specifically our episode with Jamie Ringlib, they talked about writing to that emotional space. So, for example, like you would write kind of towards that emotion until it got to this point where it was maybe uh, too much for you, or maybe you didn't want to dig deeper as a writer, and then that's when you kind of pivot and you kind of focus more on the craft and things like that, where um, you know it's. That's kind of the difference for them, Jamie Ringlob, and their writing is like, it's not the journaling. The journaling is where you go all the way deep into the emotion, but the poetry was where you go deep into the emotional point to a point and then that's when you decide to take that hard right or that hard left and kind of focus on things. Did you kind of find yourself doing that? Because obviously the content of your book is, you know, very personal to you, but a lot of the times we, you know, we talk about how the speaker isn't, you know, the poet and things like that. So did you find those times when you wrote to that emotional point and you find yourself like turning just so you can kind of focus on, you know, the poem itself?
1: Yeah. I mean, Like I mentioned, it it was very difficult and emotionally taxing to go into that territory and kind of resurface memories that maybe I hadn't explored in my writing. It definitely took a toll on me. um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it was kind of like pretty clear in therapy, you know, that that was happening. And we were kind of exploring that. It was kind of like... um, I don't know how to describe it other than like a necessary evil almost, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was, I think it was important work um, and the poems that came out of it, I think are great poems um, that are in the book, but it was definitely difficult. And so there was a point where I told my editors, I think I'm done. Like let's focus on editing what we have and, trying to figure out what stays in the collection, what goes, the order, things like that, making sure that the poems are as good as they can be from a craft perspective, things like that.
0: Totally. And again, I, you put so much emotion into these poems, so much of your personal self, and just kind of how I mentioned earlier, uh, how so often in poetry we talk about the separation between speaker and poet. Did you find like there was that big separation for you, or were you kind of riding toward your own personal truth more than anything in the poems for this collection?
1: I mean, I think that in this case, there was a very, very significant overlap between Mm -hmm. poet and speaker. You know, I think that what was a good thing that we did that we decided relatively early on in the editing process was to broaden the number of perspectives Mm. that are in the collection. And so not only are there poems where the speaker is not the boy slash man who's been abused, but it's his brother, it's his Mm -hmm. parents. And it's also inanimate objects or settings in some cases that have witnessed the abuse or are elements of what's happening in the main speaker's life who, you know, are providing their perspective as these non-person speakers, uh, which I thought was really great. Um, And I'm really glad that we did that as well. I think that, you know, one of the things that one of my editors said relatively early on was like, there's a lot of I in this collection. There's maybe too (laughs) much I. And Mm -hmm. so we were trying to think about ways to diversify the number of perspectives that are in the book. And I think it definitely improved the quality of the book.
0: Yeah. And luckily we'll get to hear one of these poems later on on what a bed takes in when we get perspective of a mattress or a bed, you know, kind of in general, of, you know what's kind of happening around it which is super interesting i mean it's very obvious that this collection would be very emotional taxing especially with like you know the, the thin veil of separation between speaker and poet and i'm just kind of curious how i guess i should say that you know your th- the therapist kind of helped spark this collection but were they also there helping you work through it as well and maybe you could talk about that a little bit in like the work of having your therapist as the same at the same time of writing these emotional poems.
1: I mean, I think that it was critical and you know mm-hmm. they kind of went hand in hand where you know we would be talking about something in therapy and that would spark some ideas about writing something new and then I would bring a poem, you know, that I'd written recently back into therapy, you know, er- early on in therapy I was seeing my therapist I think every week and then we went down to like every two weeks. Now I see my therapist about every month in the beginning. It was incredibly intensive. Uh, I didn't actually really start writing the poems that would become poems in the book until like, I started seeing my therapist in like the early spring and it wasn't until the summer that I went up starting to write, but then it kind of just snowballed from there. And so there was this interplay between being in therapy, writing the poems, and I think it was really valuable to have that safe space and that safety net to, you know, be able to think through and talk through and and uh, obviously kind of process what happened to me, um, but then also think about how it was being um, refracted through the writing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's important to have that safety net. And, you know, so often we talk about here on this podcast, uh, poetry as one tool in a tool belt of, you know, helping someone and it doesn't have to be the only tool. It shouldn't be the only tool, I feel. And, you know, I agree. Yeah, so while poetry can help towards this emotional healing, you need something else there as well to help kind of support or be that safety net.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I've always said it's really important for people who are processing trauma to turn to whatever helps them do that, whether that's Mm -hmm. something artistic or creative, like writing or painting or sculpting or, you know, doing murals or graffiti or whatever, or, or something that's not really artistic in nature at all, but that just helps them sort of process their emotions or, or serve as like a really good reservoir, you know, whether that's some kind of physical activity or hiking or traveling or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Um, I think it's, it's just really crucial to find whatever works best for you um, on an individual level.
0: Definitely. I 100% agree. And, you know, granted, my love is poetry and creative writing more in general. And maybe that's part of the reason I, that helped sparked me want to take this into the program at the, you know, carceral facilities. But also part of it has to do with having these outlets can be hard in a setting like a jail or a prison like you mentioned, you know, hiking or traveling or ceramics like that. Unfortunately, that's just not stuff when you're in a carceral system that you can't access. So in, in my head, like poetry you can access or easier. And, you know, it's more easy to get a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen in a carceral facility. So that's why I, you know, I gravitate towards using this process, this, you know, kind of writing As one of the emotional tools available to them, or one of the tools that they can use, because, you know, I would love it if the facilities that we go to, or, you know, any facility, carceral facility around the country had other options for people that could help them process the many things that have, you know, been weighing on them that led to where they are. But unfortunately, they can't. So yeah, having a pen and a paper and a mind that can help, you know, just like guide that pen to that paper is something that I see is accessible, hopefully, in, you know, most facilities.
1: Yeah, I mean, completely. I think that obviously, in the carceral system, there's, you know, unfortunately, limited options, like you're saying. And so, you know, um, reading, writing, um, I definitely think are, you know, really, really important you know, it's always, it's always helpful when, you know, even if you're not a creative writer by nature, I think it's always helpful when you can write out your thoughts and write out what you're feeling rather than having them all, you know, jumbled up inside of you. Mm -hmm.
0: Totally. I mean, as part of our program, you know, as participating in our program, we hand out notebooks to everyone who comes and participates with us. Like, you know, know, that's not something that's easily accessed pending on, you know, your own financial situation inside the crossrail system. So just being able to, you know, have someone new in our classroom and hand them this fresh notebook being like here, use this to put your mind into put whatever, you know, is best for you to put into like, please use it as you see fit, like, it's just something that, you know, I'm glad we're able to do that for them. Yeah kind of while we're on this topic of the people in our program, as we'll see in the second part of this podcast, many of the people in our classroom really connected uh, to the sense of isolation that's kind of found in your work. So I'm just hoping you kind of speak on this idea of one feeling isolated and how writing poetry can help one break out of isolation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the nature of child sex abuse um, and being a survivor is uh, inherently isolating um, Mm -hmm. just because so many people who are abused um, in that way don't tell anybody about what happened. I certainly Mm -hmm. didn't. I didn't tell anybody what happened until I was 30 and, you know, just the shame and the fear are really inhibiting um, even more so I think for men because of, kind of social stigma around, you know, being abused or not being in control, not being a man, all that BS. Um, So, you know, I think that there's that inherent isolation. I definitely do empathize with the isolation that a lot of incarcerated people feel in that sense Mm -hmm. of feeling like people don't, understand what you're going through that, you know, not only are you physically isolated from the people in your life who you care about, but you're emotionally isolated often in the sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, you're, you're going through something as an incarcerated person that other people just aren't, you know, even the people who care the most about you. Um, And so there's, there's definitely that through line of, You know, I'm going through or have been through this experience and you just, you don't know what it's like having gone through it.
0: Yeah, 100%. And something there's just that connection, unfortunately, of in our carceral system, people just feel this isolation. It's just kind of the nature of how it's created and how it's set up is to put people in this isolated situation. And then, you know, this whole out of sight, out of mind thing. And You know, it's almost kind of like the same mentality of, you know, this, you know, patriarchal idea of, you know, men in charge and deciding how things work and they're super strong that almost leads to the same idea of, you know, this sexual abuse survivors and how they're not allowed to speak up because, you know you're not a man, you're not being that strong man. It's like this similar idea that's kind of pushing both of like suppressing both of these groups of people within this country. And it's, you know, it's super sad that we're stuck in this world where men aren't allowed to show their emotions or speak up about something that's, you know, not seen as seen as like hyper-masculine in the same sense that pushing all these people away into this carceral system to where they're just forgotten about. And there's no, real change you know it's just like a country or a system or systems built on pushing things away and pushing them out of mind instead of allowing people to fully understand you know mistakes and growth and uh, processing traumas and emotions and things like that it's just just not something that our country cares about culturally i think
1: yeah i i completely agree
0: this kind of relates in a way. Um, in our preliminary interview, you mentioned that you love poetry because it al- allows the writer to play with time. And I think about this idea of being isolated, especially in the carceral system. And, you know, time is kind of meaningless when you're, you know, stuck in a walled room with no windows and you can't, you don't have like the day and the night to help you know, try to figure these things out. So I'm just hoping you can kind of speak on this idea of playing with time and writing. And because I'm interested in how poetry can help us, you know, go back in time or reflect or even, you know, just like process our daily lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two things here that are interesting. One of the beautiful things, like I was saying in our pre-interview about time and poetry is that poetry really allows you to play with time kind of like uh i'm a huge marvel nerd so kind of like oh, dr Doctor, Doctor strange yeah um you know in the sense of you can go back in time mm-hmm. you can go forward in time if you want um but what's really cool is that you can draw out a moment for as long as you want Um, You know, you could have something that in sort of the broad span of time takes a minute, less than a minute. You know, you could write a whole poem about a glance or a look that somebody gives you and kind of dive into that and then extend that moment for the entire length of the poem if you want, if that's what is going to serve the interest of the poem, and so I love that aspect of poetry. Um, it's one of my favorite aspects of writing poetry, especially you know given my sort of preoccupation, obviously with the book, but also the newer stuff that I'm working on now. You know, in terms of looking at uh, a relationship and and you know what happens after or during different big. And tragic and sad, uh, usually uh, life events mm-hmm. in that relationship. So that's you know one thing. and then I think another thing is that poetry has this relationship with time in the sense that it can be, depending upon the poem, it can really be something that is timeless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we read poetry from Homer from millennia ago. We read poetry from four or five hundred years ago. We read poetry from a hundred years ago. And there's so much of poetry because it's about, you know, in its best forms and, and ways, it's about these Fundamental aspects of the human condition, poetry can really exist and be useful and make an impact outside of time. And I think that that's really another kind of magical aspect to it as well.
0: Totally. I even think of like Sappho, where, you know, this is thousands of years ago and we only have fragments of Sappho's writing but still those fragments are so emotional that you know this work keeps getting referenced and republished and retranslated because even fragments of poetry can be timeless which is wild to think about yeah I'd love to take this time to transition into the second half of our podcast so for those who are unfamiliar with our podcast, uh, the personhood project is more than just this interview here with Phil. There's several things that happened before this interview takes place, starting with Phil sending us some poems that we could take into our classrooms in the carceral facilities and you know we teach these poems and we take in some writing prompts around these poems and then the people in the classroom write poems inspired by the work. And then we bring them here for Phil to read. So could you start off by reading your poem, How to Bury a Boy at Sea?
1: Sure. How to Bury a Boy at Sea. Above us, The sky lost all its natural hue and roared with a force that shook us from bow to stern. The time for splintering drew near. The lightning flashed. For the first time, he looked scared. It was an expression I knew so well, having seen it in the water staring back at me for years through every kind of weather. The waves barked and the wind laughed, for we were children adrift and aimless like a bubble one whose very being could be snuffed out amid the casual violence swirling around us. Then it happened. The ship began to crack apart. We were separated, truly, for the first time in memory. A passenger watching an ancient homeland fade from view. I was the one who shattered the boat. I was sick of the salt water slowly poisoning my cells, depleting me day after day. First, I whispered. Then I spoke. After, I shouted and howled a ferocious tune. He had caged me here, and I had agreed to be caged. I thought cages were safe. They are not. They are merely a tool used to keep us from being in our natural state. He staggered, grasping for me or anything to hold on to, but scooped up only rain-swept air and disappointment, precursors to his ultimate watery end. I was floating on the wreckage as he gulped his last. I didn't move. I didn't have to. All I had to do was be. Then he disappeared, a sun forever hiding behind clouds. There I stood, at last alone, with only one more body to shed. This boy who lived a lifetime inside of me, carrying a greater burden than anyone should bear. This boy slipped out of my skin, billowy and white, and closed his eyes in peace, having shown valor beyond measure. I kissed his forehead, then smoothed his hair and thanked him for living long enough to see this day, for being both a boy and something more, something sublime. He and the boat sank down, and I became enveloped in the water, in grief, in joy, in song. I started to swim back to shore in the light of the morning.
0: Thank you so much for reading that. such a beautiful
1: poem. Thank you.
0: One part of this poem really stood out to the people in our classrooms or the several classes that we taught. And it was the, he had caged me there and I had agreed to be caged. I thought cages were safe. They are not, they are merely a tool used to keep us from being in our natural state. So many people obviously caught on to that and it, or clung on to that and felt that connection to what you were writing there. And I think we'll see that when we get to these few poems that were inspired by this poem. Would you read the first untitled poem inspired by How to Bury a Boy at Sea?
1: Sure. Untitled One. Above us the sky lost its natural hue. The clouds locked and the gate closed trap for a murder I didn't commit, my mind a never-ending wheel of outrageous thoughts, a yearning to be free from a room filled with nothing but hot breath and dirty pussy, my dreams of getting high again keeping me from sleep, talking so much, talking about nothing of substance, oh how I realize ignorance is a disease, a disease incurable for most, something you let ride and laugh off as to pass the already unpassing time.
0: Thank you for reading that. Wow. I want to say one thing off the top is that, you know, a lot of times in our classrooms, you know, we have limited time in there. So when people are strapped for creative juices i usually say why not start with the same first line that the inspiration poem used and see where it takes you so we saw this poet use that technique she started with the the same introduction that you did and then she took it her own direction so i love seeing the difference that one line can inspire for many people
1: yeah for sure
0: One thing about this poem that really stands out to me or like that really draws me into it, it's all for people who uh, don't have it pulled up in front of them. And just as a reminder, you can go to roughdrafttx.org and find all of these poems so you can kind of read along as we're talking about them. But the fourth line on here is just the word commit and just Mm -hmm. something about having, it's the only line in this whole poem. That's just one word long and just something about, trap for a murder I didn't line break commit and just having that word Mm -hmm. standing alone just really has like there's just something really impactful about that word standing on its own line for me
1: yeah no I mean I think that too often we as poets don't think enough about things like that and and sort of word placement or you know what having a certain word or certain amount of words on a line is going to do uh for the poem so um that definitely stood out to me as well um i probably didn't (laughs) read it when i was reading it to fully capture that break in commit um, after after didn't but it's definitely it's definitely stark and makes you it it stops you a bit which i think is is part of the point
0: yeah definitely and You know, that's one thing I like about poetry is that you don't necessarily have to read it how it looks on the page, like you can almost live in two completely different worlds, like what it is on the page and what it is like read out loud. So I think that's totally fine. But going back into this poem, or maybe a little background on this poem first is that the writer, she's, you know, this I think it was her first or maybe second class of being in our classroom and she didn't have a lot of background in poetry but I'd love in the like seventh line from the bottom how we get this oh how I realize and just how natural that oh came out of her writing you know it's something we kind of like think of as a poetic tool we think of something you know we use in poetry but as someone who you know doesn't have a lot of experience reading poetry let alone writing poetry have just seeing like that exclamation or that that release of that oh in its natural state just someone writing emotionally is just such a cool thing to see in a work
1: yeah no i i definitely was struck by that too i was like oh that's a A really cool you know sort of poetic convention that they're they're tapping into there but it's definitely something that you would not necessarily expect from somebody who doesn't have that um that background in in poetry or creative writing so that's awesome
0: yeah there's several little tools in here that again i love this i love thinking about how these tools and poetry came from somewhere like you know wherever they came from and seeing someone naturally do things just kind of like helps me understand like the history of poetry almost like how someone just instinctively went this direction same I want to also relate it to the, there's two lines, talking so much, talking about nothing, line break of substance, and having this repetition of the word talking there and how it builds up the the emotion of the poem that help leads to this, oh, how I realize. And I think both of those things are something, you know, we would work on in like a creative writing classroom or something like something you would teach someone is like a good technique, but seeing it here in its natural state just has like, natural state. By natural state, I kind of mean like someone isn't thinking of craft. They're just kind of writing based off the emotions flowing out of them. And I think that's just interesting to see and so exciting to see. Definitely. Would you mind reading the second untitled poem that's inspired by this piece? Or your work, I should say?
1: Untitled 2. Can't even walk or run. There's no stars or sun. There are only these four walls around me and this gate that locks. It's a cage. I sleep on the cold floor, but I have a bed. What this is nothing to see, but I hear a voice and it's not me. Hear footsteps, but it's not me. I'm just here in this cage till I'm free.
0: Again, for people who don't have this pulled up in front of them, one of the really fascinating things about this poem is that each line is slightly indented a little further than the line above it. So it's almost like a ramp, like shaped-wise. And it's just so cool seeing, like again, people who aren't completely familiar uh, with poetry or reading a lot of poetry, unfortunately, due to, you know, what they have access to in the carceral facility, just seeing their play on the page as well. So we see like this natural, like, hey, I wanted everything slightly shaped weird. Like I wanted everything slightly angled. And like, what does that, what did that add for them? It's just interesting to think about.
1: Yeah. You know, because you have this sort of like, I don't want to say like incongruity, but you have these sort of, different things set up in the poem where you know the speaker says i sleep on the cold floor but i have a bed and so like there's something off there or not not fitting not matching and so you have this slant in the form of the poem that's kind of like giving you this visual hint that like this isn't normal
0: mm-hmm And I also think about this poem specifically talks about being trapped within these four walls and how, you know, not always, but like poems are kind of rectangular shaped. They're kind of shaped like, even with like longer lines and things like that, having everything left justified feels like another wall, like it could be another wall. So having just something angled like that to me feels like, how can I even, how can I not add another wall to this world? How can I change the shape of something to be like you know this there's no way that this looks like a wall because you don't have that hard left justified and whether they intended it or not like that emotion pours out of this poem which is so cool yeah definitely and then ending on the words i'm free after starting off a poem can't even walk just like the, the journey that this short poem goes on emotionally and kind of imagistic journey is so cool.
1: Yeah, I obviously, you know, understand why there's, you know, the, the repetition of being in a cage, um, you know, given where our writers are writing from, there there is this longing that's in the poem that I I see as a, a connection to the How to bury a Boy at Sea poem. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you can definitely feel that same emotion, like coming from a similar emotional place. And yeah, longing is such a great word for it. Done in such a great way. There's a third poem here titled Suffocating. Could you read that one for us as well, please?
1: Sure. Suffocating. One breath closer to my last, one moment closer to the end, Will freedom ever be found at last? Soaring high, high in the heavens. That's where I'm meant to be. That's where I will be when I am free. Cold, dark, lonely, scared, confused, angry. Chains fall off, happy, liberated, free.
0: Thank you. That was a beautiful reading of that poem. Again, I, I encourage everyone to kind of pull these poems up because there's a lot of like creativity in the play of the these poems, and this one almost kind of feels like it's not really, but it kind of feels like a high bun in its shape. And like at the top, we have a six line stanza poem, and then underneath we have a four line stanza that's kind of justified in a little bit. That almost feels like it could have been like some play on some Japanese form, like a like a haiku or a tanka or something like that. But it's really interesting reading them together, even though they're, you know, they're related, but they feel like emotionally the same. And just seeing how the writer crafted the shape of it, again, kind of adds a a third dimension to the piece that I definitely recommend people going to RoughDraftTX.org to have a look at it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's not only set apart in terms of form, where the words sit on the page relative to one another, but, um, you know, the sort of second stanza, the second little mini poem within the poem is so stark, um, you know, for those who are following along and reading it, you know, we have cold, then a space and a period, dark, space and a period, lonely, scared space and a period confused space and a period angry chains fall off happy space and a period liberated space and a period free and so you you have these you know real kind of natural pauses when you're reading it either out loud or on the page in those words and you know it's a definite contrast to you know the the flow of the the earlier section um and so it kind of the resonance is there between them but the i don't know how to say it i guess the the kind of linguistic uh or way that the words are flowing um is is definitely in contrast even though you have that emotional resonance
0: yeah it's like a it's complete shift in uh the word that's coming to my brain is cadence. So we get like this flow, but then in in the first half, and then then in the second stanza, it's like everything's completely broken up with these hard periods that, you know, a typical period happens right after the word. But as you said, there's a space. They're spacing out these periods, showing you like, hey, this is a break. Like you're taking a break here. Like it's just more attention drawn to that, like making sure that the reader slows down. It's great control of a reader by, you know, that small shift of having a space between the period. Yeah. And the only line in that four line stanza that doesn't have any of those periods is chains fall off. And just like that flow of those three words and, you know, causing such a shift in what comes next with happy, liberated, free, just... Again, we get this beautiful journey in the poem from where everything started to where it ends. Definitely. We have one more poem here inspired by How to Bury a Boy at Sea. Would you mind reading that one as well, please? Sure.
1: Untitled, I want to eat a steak, yet I know he can't. His tummy will ache. I don't want no more salads, yet I know what he goes through. I used to let my chocolate candy run like glue. But now it's always frozen hard as a rock. Hope I don't break a tooth. I never ate greens, yet to help him stay, I'm going to stay clean and help him poop. Fries and fast are no longer for us. Cancer is the enemy. I'm his wife. Together we learn to fight.
0: I really like this poem because I feel like it takes the same essence of what you were writing in How to Bury a Boy at Sea and kind of this you know, this longing that we talked about earlier, but it kind of brings in someone else into it, which is really interesting. So we have, you know, the wife talking about their feelings, like internal feelings, but in a connection to their husband who's going through this cancer treatment or this battle with cancer. And it's just interesting, you know, getting that point of view and having such a, like a strong sense of who they are with, you know, I want to eat a steak. <laughs> Just like starting off with that, sit, that line is so fun to start off in a, such a serious poem about like balancing this, like need to be themselves, but also help this person that they deeply care about.
1: I definitely appreciated that. I also, I noticed kind of this, the turn of the poem for me, you know, comes after the lines I'm going to stay clean and help him poop, you mm-hmm. know, which is like a very sort of matter of fact thing that, you know, a lot of people who are caretakers have to do with the people who they're taking care of, especially, you know, if they're in a place where they can't go to the bathroom by themselves. Yeah. And then we have the lines Fries and Fast are no longer for us. Cancer is the enemy. I'm his wife. Together we learn to fight. And so, there's a different, I feel like, um, almost emotional register that the poem Mm -hmm. shifts into for the last four lines, where you have this combination of regret or wistfulness with resolve, Um, and I just, I really liked that mixture.
0: I totally agree, and it, you know, looking at the part before the Volta we get a lot of I statements like I do this he does this I do this he does this we do we don't feel I mean we know they're together but we don't feel that togetherness until we get to that turn and then we get that first us the are no longer for us cancer is the enemy and then we kind of get everything we're talking about the big like kind of reveal of it of like why why is there difference between you and your husband doesn't come until like almost the very end of the poem. And just like, it takes a lot of skill. to like, you know, keep your reader engaged for that long before you, you know, give them the context of understanding things. So that's what it's really powerful when we get to the third to last line is when we get the cancer is the enemy. We don't even get that introduced before that, which is a really powerful way of like holding on to that tension. um, So your reader can build up the understanding of what's happening. And then again, to end on the line together, we learn to fight, just that we and that solidarity is just like a beautiful way of going from the beginning of, I want to eat a steak. <laughs> so we get a, several of these poems that were inspired by your work kind of start us in one place and end in another, and we get a journey. And I think a lot of it was, you know, inspired by the the boat scene. You know, it felt like a journey being on the boat in your work
1: I definitely I I appreciate that Um, and I, I definitely think that these poems did a really good job of capturing not only that feeling of being sort of isolated in cage but of going on that journey like you said yeah it's perfect
0: would you mind reading your second poem what a bed takes in
1: sure what a bed takes in the things I've seen would make me tear out my eyes, if I had any. What I felt from so many years ago still stains me deep in every fiber of my being, no matter how many times I am washed. I saw a boy, thin of frame, drawn into my center by a larger one, stronger, who pushed the little one's head under my folds, and there it stayed for quite some time bobbing like a cork in the Atlantic. All these years later, I want to swallow myself whole for letting it just happen, right on top of me, for not shouting, for not even breathing a word. How does one recover from witnessing such pain? Will I ever tell you, dear reader, of all that I know? Can you wring it out of me like water or semen? Will I collapse in a heap, damp at your feet? Can you stretch me in the rack, tortured and taut? Even then, what am I? Certainly not what you see and touch every day. Surely, nothing so neat and serene and soft could hold so much inside.
0: Such a beautiful poem. Thank you so much for for reading that for us. Thank you. I'm going to read the writing prompt that we wrote and took into the classroom based around this poem. And just as a reminder, this writing prompt is also on our website, so you can read it and use it on your own for your own writing. What a bed takes in is a persona poem. A persona poem is a poem written from the point of view of another person or object. In this case, Goldstein is writing from the perspective of a mattress. In this poem, the mattress talks about the many things it's seen and regrets it has for not stopping some of them. Write a persona poem from the point of view of an everyday object. You can pick a mattress like Goldstein did or anything you want. In the poem, share all of the things that this object has witnessed in its life. Yeah, so I think a lot of people really ran with this in the classroom, so it's really fun to see. I know it's what point of view they wrote from and we had fun in the class where people would read their poem and then everyone would try to guess you know what the point of view of the of the object was or like what the eye is in the poem so that, that makes it a lot more fun you know in a classroom setting so would you mind reading the untitled poem uh on here the first one based off this poem and we can kind of go off of there
1: sure untitled In this place, there's a lot of sadness, yet I see so much beauty. People come in so lost and tired, and then one day they are renewed, full of life, well rested and fed some food, and I'm glad to be the one who got to hold them here till they find the path that they were meant to take. Some stay lost and leave only to return with the same lost soul. Many feel alone, but little do they know I am right here whispering to them all day to cheer them on, help them find their way.
0: Do you know what this poem, what the eye of this poem is?
1: I feel like I want to say it is a bed in a prison cell. But I'm I could be totally wrong about
0: that. No, I mean, I it's up, it's, yeah, it's not super clear, but I think that's totally okay. It doesn't need to be explicit, but uh, it's just fun, the, the guess and the, you know, the playfulness of, you know, understanding what it was, but it was, she said it was written from the point of view of the walls of the prison or the jail, the walls of the jail. I think that just adds a layer to it. And granted, you know, these poems aren't final drafts, like there's more drafts they can go in and, you know, maybe adding a title in there that helps hint at what, you know, point of view they're writing from would really like help lock it in. But I, I, I think knowing what the point of view is helps us read it differently. So that's why I like to talk about it. And then as we kind of talk about, you know, what it's doing well, then we can keep that in mind as, for our conversation. One thing I think this poem is doing well, kind of bouncing off of that is the enjambment. So the third, I'll even start on the second line. We get, yet I see so much beauty, people come in so lost, line break and tired, and then one day they are renewed, period, full, and then line break of life. And just like the people come in so lost and then we get the line break and then just that word full kind of sitting on its own there and then the line break full of life, well-rested and fed some food. Just like it works with line breaks so well to help not only drive the poem but also create these, create these images, like different images, like full can mean so much. So like it allows our brain to go in many directions until we get to that next line and see exactly where they want us to be.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm connecting it to the preceding word of renewed, you know, feeling sort of like topped up, feeling rejuvenated, you mm-hmm. know, um, and um, yeah, great, great use of enjambment.
0: Again, we kind of get this, I, this understanding or almost like a journey in the poem, which happens quite often in the other ones we read as well where we kind of start off with like what's happening at the beginning and what can happen. And then we end up in a place of, uh, whispering to them all day to cheer them on, help them find their way. So we kind of like, I really appreciate like where the poem takes us and it's like, you know, it doesn't walls can help someone feel closed in, which, you know, it often does as we often seen in the other poems on this podcast, but also for this person, they see like, Hey, I'm taking this time to mean something for me and myself. And like, I'm taking this place that I'm, that is closed in and seeing it as a place where I can be renewed, where I can feel full of life again, which is just like an empowering thing for this writer. I'm sure. Would you want to read the next untitled poem here that was inspired by uh, what a bed takes in? Sure.
1: Untitled. There are many beautiful things I have seen. Then again, there is so much ugliness. I travel on these tracks, and I feel it all. The sun shining down, warming my rails. The rain washing me off. The wind blowing. The hardest is death. How do I pretend it never happens? I only wish I could have stopped.
0: I think this poem might have one of my favorite line breaks slash stanza breaks that I've ever read read in a poem like to be honest and from it's the break from the second stanza to the third stanza yeah the wind blowing line break stanza break the hardest is death it's just like wow yeah those two lines put together with that line break and stanza break is just reading it and talking about I definitely have goosebumps right now it's it's so beautiful
1: yeah I mean it it flows so well and it really like it doesn't even hit you fully until you look at it i think again after your first read honestly hitting me even more powerful now than when i first was looking at it um and both lines sort of work independently of one another but then Mm -hmm. you know when you connect them the wind blowing the hardest is death Yeah, it's just, that's, that's awesome.
0: And again, we got this, it's three, three line stanzas. The first one, there's um, periods at almost every, you know, end line, end of line. So it's like, we're kind of controlled by each line with a period. And then in the second stanza, we kind of get this reputation of the sun, the rain, the wind, where there's no periods at all. And then we get to the final stanza where we have first line has a period at the end, the second line has a question mark, the third line has a period. So, you know, you can read it either way where, you know, the wind blowing is just a connection to the sun shining down, warming my rails, the rain washing me off, the wind blowing. And that's kind of like its own contained world of just like describing what's naturally happening around them. But by choosing not to have a period there, we also can read it as the wind blowing the hardest is death, which is just like, ugh, those lines. Ugh, just Every yeah. time I read it.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. And then, uh, I mean, my guess is that this is from the perspective of a train car or a locomotive or something. Yes, like exactly.
0: That. Yes.
1: Um, but, you know, I, I read the last, Two lines for sure, maybe even the last four. If you're starting with the wind blowing the hardest, is death. How do I pretend it never happens? I only wish I could have stopped. Um, I mean, I'm my mind is immediately going to somebody who is regretting a crime that they
0: committed, mm-hmm. regretting any you know, anything in their life that could have led them to this point where they are in their life, and they're yeah, obviously no one wants to be in a jail and in the prison and any carceral facility. And, you know, oftentimes it's more than just like one action that led someone there. Granted that action might've been the thing that got them there, but so many things happened in the life that kind of led them to that point of that action. So, you know, just thinking about this, how do I pretend it never happens? I only wish I could have stopped. And, you know, whatever that is personally for that person fits so well in the context of writing a poem from the point of view of a train and just like thinking about you know what a train does and how it how powerful it is and how you know hard they are to you know bring to an actual stop and yeah it's just it's the perfect metaphor i think and this poem is so great at encapsulating so many human emotions within this train There's another untitled poem here inspired by your piece. Would you mind reading that? Sure.
1: Untitled. I get lost or no energy, or I set you off track. Everybody puts their filth on me and fight over me, or sometimes I bring people together. It can be so loud you want to scream, or so low it frustrates me and makes me want to give up. It's like being on a roller coaster of emotions: happy, sad, excited, scared. But in the end, I have the power to turn it all off. Um, yeah, I'm guessing they're talking about a TV, like a communal uh, TV.
0: Yeah, so specifically the TV remote that oh, you know okay. that they all kind of fight, fight over the mode. Yeah. yeah, and again, just for people who don't have it pulled up this is another visually really cool poem where the words i get on the very first line are the only thing that's left justified and then everything else is indented over so just like thinking about what those two words kind of represent in the context of everything. I'm not exactly sure I know the connection or, you know, I, I, I've sussed everything out of it, but there definitely is a lot of draw into those two words, purposeful draw by the poet, which I find very fascinating.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm sort of getting a sense of agency, you mm-hmm. know, Like, I get to do whatever. I get to do this. I get to do that. I get to be something or I get to turn things off that the remote almost kind of by its function has more control than the people who are fighting over it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think themes of agency are something that comes up often with the poems in our classroom, obviously, because people are Stuck in this situation where they have little, little to none, you know, within a carceral system because you're reduced down to so little with so many limitations on everything you can do that the smallest forms of agency are, you know, something that are hard fought and you know celebrated by them. So just thinking about that and that I get being so isolated on there is definitely powerful and especially in another poem where we've seen kind of often in you know the poems. In this episode specifically, like they kind of start in this place of like fighting and frustration or negative emotions. But we end in kind of these more upbeat positions like this one ending on. It's like being on a roller coaster of emotions, happy, sad, excited, scared. But in the end, I have the power to turn it all off. So just like something about having that ability, that agency to just be like shutting out the outside world and just kind of going internally even is what I feel like is a powerful part of this piece we have one final poem inspired by your work would you mind reading that one please
1: untitled not omnipresent but everywhere you look there i am i hold it all together as you fall apart stick with me because you have to stack taller than your sun deprived eyes can look over i will not tumble so easily only in your dreams will you break free. Open your eyes to a new day, and there I will be again, stagnant as ever, and just as loyal as you are to me.
0: Any idea what this one is? Any guess?
1: <laughs> um, hmm. I'm not 100% sure. At first, I was thinking the sun, mm-hmm. but... Now I'm thinking something more kind of structural, um, Mm -hmm. and, and land-based. So I don't know if it's like, again, the walls or some sort of structure, but that's, that's where my mind is heading.
0: Yeah. that, That same as the first poem inspired by, um, what a bed takes in. It was kind of in the object is like either the walls of the jail or kind of the jail itself. I, I kind of like book ending, you know, I, I kind of get of curate how, you, what, in what order we read these poems. And I kind of wanted to bookend them because I feel like they're so different in their tonality and they're so different in their representation of the walls that, you know, kind of having some separation between them kind of allows them to live in their own worlds a little more. But, you know, the first one was a little more upbeat as we talked about it, it being about like really taking the time to reflect on things and feel renewed and full of life given this time given time as we call it you know someone being incarcerated we say given they're given time but you know in this bottom one we get a different point of view of someone feeling more trapped We, we end in the second to last line um or the Third to last line, open your eyes to a new day and line break. There I will be again, stagnant as ever, line break and just as loyal as you are to me. So it's really interesting seeing this interpretation of, you know, kind of like a jail or walls or being trapped in, you know, this cage. Fixated on this idea of cage based off the first poem that you read for us. So I think that helped kind of go over into the second one as well. So just seeing like the, the... tonality difference between this one and the other one is so fascinating to me.
1: Well, and instead of treating the walls in this sort of adversarial antagonistic relationship, there's almost kind of like a a partnership, a support, and a, a feeling maybe not of appreciation that I think is probably taking it too far, but kind of like respect for sort of showing up almost
0: mm-hmm. i think yeah i think of this the the phrase like mutual respect with that last line and just as loyal as you are to me like i think it's a full understanding of you know i understand my actions that led me here but i also understand your true nature you know like you know as a poet and someone speaking on the jail you know it's like it's it's a critique as much as it is anything. Yeah, I really like the, how they how she goes into description in this poem. Uh, I hold it all together as you fall apart. Stick with me because you have to stack taller than your sun deprived eyes can look over. That line, stack taller than your sun deprived eyes can look over, is like such a powerful idea or like image created around what these walls or what this jail is, then have it go into the next part of the line. I will not tumble so easily. Again, we feel this almost critique of, you know, the carceral system and things like that. Just Mm -hmm. with that short little line. That's yeah. Very powerful.
1: Yeah. You get the sense of kind of overpowering of, of being this thing that's, huge in scale compared to the person you know Mm -hmm. the the you in the poem kind of cliche but like I mean I do think that one of the best movies made about prison life is the Shawshank Redemption and Mm -hmm. there's a beautiful kind of haunting almost scary shot um, towards the beginning of the Movie where Tim Robbins' character Andy Dufresne is is going into the prison for the first time, and the camera sort of like pans up to this like break in the walls. It's like at a corner, but you see the walls just sort of going up, 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 and you're you get this like vertigo sense of being kind of underneath this massive stone structure um and so you know that's what it conjured up for me
0: Mm -hmm. definitely i think that's such like a haunting image and such like a emotionally powerful movie yeah that's a perfect like way of thinking about what this poem is trying to represent i feel like this is a great place to end it on this powerful image based off this powerful movie so I want to thank you for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate you sharing your work and you offering, you know, beautiful feedback on these poems and I can't wait for them to all hear it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a real treat. And I'm glad that we got to read these poems um, and talk through this. And I hope that people find meaning in it.
0: Yes, definitely. I agree. I want to thank Phil Goldstein for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program for sharing their work with us, as well as Humanities Texas for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Alex Lyon, and graphics designer, Jules Tennell. Until next time.